What a great blessing it is to remember the death, burial, resurrection, and Jesus coming again soon. Amen. That, that's something that we do every week. Thank you, Dee. This week has been an amazing time to celebrate Jesus as well, as over 70 of our teenagers went to CIY, and over 70 young people were ministered to at Bond Camp through a First Chance Camp, and many of you had big parts of that, whether through your generosity and making sure they had resources, funds, through your prayers, and through your service. There, there were uh, dozens of people that spent the, the time at camp and at CIY in Holland, Michigan, that made that all possible. So I just want to celebrate. If you were a part of those two teams at camp or at CIY, would you raise your hand? We want to celebrate and say thank you to you. Uh, let's praise God for those that made that possible this week. I also want to celebrate the John Sales family. Uh, John um, was with us last Sunday, you know, uh, in, um, Dale and I even went to visit him after church, and John passed away through the week, and then he was uh, honored this week and gave glory to God for his life. Him and his family were a big part of the vision to share hope of Jesus for years, and, and I praise God for John and, and the, those who helped remember him this week as well. Uh, today we're kicking off a new series uh, called Hot Topics, but it, it generally flows, and, and the core of it is out of another focus on Jesus. Uh, so far this year, we've been kind of flowing through the Quest 52 content, so if you're reading that with us, continue to read with us. We're halfway done with that, uh, but the first series was focused on the person of Jesus. That We just sang about that, Jesus with us. He became flesh. He was Emmanuel, fully God and fully human, and then this last series was focused on the power of Jesus in the Breakthrough series, where Jesus has the power to break through our lives in any given moment with, with miracles and with power to change who we are. And today we start a new series uh, flowing out of this idea that, of the preaching of Jesus. If you have your Bibles, uh, turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to examine his very first sermon today, primarily. Uh, Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is known as the Sermon on the Mount. His very first sermon, the, the, the core of his preaching, and uh, we're going to uh, dive into it today for this hot topic. The hot topic today that we're going to be covering is morality. Now, that is in es essence not why I'm sitting at this table today. Uh, the, I've chosen to sit at this table today because I brought home a bug, a stomach bug from camp over the weekend. And so today uh, I'm not here because of the sensitivity of the subject, which it is very sensitive. I'm just here at the table so I don't fall over, okay? And, uh, but, but I am here today primarily because I do believe preaching matters. We're going to be studying about the preaching of Jesus. And, and Matt Proctor, if you were here with us last week uh, from Ozark Christian College, he's the president. He challenged us to, to really uh, be praying for and supporting uh, the preachers of the next generation because uh, the Word of God and preaching the Word of God, hearing the Word of God is what changes lives. It's, what, it's where hope is often conveyed, uh, not just from the pulpit, but also when we share the Word of God with our friends and family. And, and I commit to you that I'm here this morning in, in this state physically because I believe what I'm about to say matters from the Word of God, from Jesus himself. Uh, preaching, it really matters. Uh, Daly seems to know this. Uh, uh, over, over the years, especially since we moved to, to Greenville, Daly was my main uh, person that listened to my sermons when I was practicing. In fact, I generally don't allow anyone to listen, but Daly wanted to start listening to my sermons when I'd practice them. So she would go into our spare bedroom on Saturday night, and, and I would just preach my sermon to Daly. 
And you know sometimes sermons can be 30, 40 minutes, and, and when you're working on something uh, in, in a message, it may take an hour, an hour and a half to get through something. You, you're going through a section, and you mess up, so you redo it, and you redo it. And, and Daly would oftentimes just smile, and sometimes she would laugh when I would really mess up. But more times than anything, she would always have a question at the end of the time. And I loved her questions. Uh, they, they were very insightful at times, but sometimes they were just flat out funny. One night she asked me, she said, Dad, how do you know what to say in your sermon? And I says, oh, daily, God helps me. And then she says, but Dad, then why do you mess up so much? <laughs> my prayer is that in my physical state, in my mental sometimes distraction, that I don't mess up today. That what you hear in this message is clear from the Word of God, from the, the preaching of Jesus himself. As we dive into this hot topic of morality and what that means for you in our world that we would hear from Jesus and begin to live it and allow it to change our lives. Like Brad just talked about that. When we let the word win, it changes us in how we live. So what is morality? It's kind of, it is a hot topic. And in today's culture, uh, there, there's morality war, wars, there's morality conversations. So here's the definition I would like to start off based on Google research. Uh, morality is the concern with the distinction between good and evil evil or right and wrong, right and good conduct. So, so that's basically what morality is. It's this ability to distinguish between good and evil and right and wrong and have good conduct. It says this is the concern of that. So my question is, next, whose concern? Who gets to decide what's moral and what's not moral? Who gets to decide what's right and wrong? Who defines what is moral? According to a survey in 2020, which was kind of a strange year in and of itself, 58% of adults in America said, you get to decide no matter who you are, we all get to decide what's right and wrong for yourself. Uh, the vast majority of Americans said, you are the ones who get to decide based on how you feel, what you think. That number's not that different in, in people who attend church. The people that attend church uh, in that same survey found that only 54% uh, of them said that the Bible is the moral truth in 2020. So that means 46% of people who come to church on a regular basis in 2020 believe that the Bible was a moral truth. The 46% the of them thought it was up to everyone to decide. I want you to know, though, that the staff has been going through a book called Faithfully Different. And in this book, there, the, the main purpose of it is to regain a biblical truth of where morality comes from. And it stated in 2020 uh, that, uh, that that was the reality. Uh, but when the book was created in 2022, the number of church attenders who said the Bible is a source of guidance for moral decision had dropped from 54 to 51 in two years. Probably not a surprise to you. Morality in this world is, is about what I want, what feels right to me. I can't help but think in this room and in our nation for the first time ever that in American history, that number has dropped below 50%. Where basically half of you think I get to decide and you get to decide what your morality is. And half of you think it comes from the Bible. We're in a turning point in our culture. And here's the, the thing that makes me wonder, why do so many so-called Christians sense that, that God no longer has the moral uh, call for our lives, but we get to decide? In the book that we've been reading called Faithfully Different, the author, Natasha Crane, says this, we live in a culture where feelings are the ultimate guide. How you feel decides what you do. 
We live in a culture where happiness is the ultimate goal. Not holiness, but happiness. Where judging is the ultimate sin. If, if, for that matter, if a preacher says anything, or if a, a brother in Christ says anything, that what you're doing is wrong, well, that's what's really wrong. No one should judge anyone. And God is the ultimate guess. So how can we really know anything? If God is the ultimate guest and uh, feelings are ultimate guide, then, then can anyone really say anything is true or not true or good or evil? My mom sure could. I mean, I don't know if you had a mom like mine. She could sense that if something was morally wrong in my heart like that, I don't know if it was the way I looked, what she felt in my body language, but, but she could quickly discern if something was chaotic in my life based on right or wrong. For example, if my brother and I were going to a, a friend's house or maybe a party as teenagers, she would ask a simple question if she felt something was off. She'd say, uh, she would say something like this, would God really want you going there or doing what's going on there tonight? And you know what my brother would often say? Well, everybody's going, Mom. It's okay. Uh, I promise we won't do anything bad. And she would say, well, would God want you going there and doing what's going on? See, here's the dilemma. When our goals simply become not doing anything bad, we've really lowered our standards. I wonder how many times you allow yourself to do things or to go places. And what you tell God, not, not just your parents, what you tell God, what you tell yourself, well, everyone's doing it, and as long as we're not doing anything bad, it's okay. Those are really high standards. You may be thinking, well, I have high standards. My family has extremely high standards. Compared to who? We're tempted to make ourselves feel good when we compare ourselves to the messy standards of the world. When we, when we look at our lives compared to like Putin from Russia, uh, we're, we're not some dictator who uh, is power hungry to the point where he'd kill anyone. Uh, or, or maybe we compare ourselves to a five-time uh, drug offender who, who's spending time in jail. Well, we're really not bad compared to those. But what if you compare yourself to Billy Graham or that sweet old lady that lives across the street? Then how do your standards match up? So who gets to say what's right and wrong? That's what morality is. Uh, does it even matter? Because of the morality of people today, we often think that true morality is judged by society. Does that make sense? I mean, think about that. If morality is judged by society, listen to these words of Samuel Butler. Morality, he says, is the custom of one's country and the current feelings of one's peers. Cannibalism is moral in a cannibalistic country. So who gets to decide what's right and wrong? Unfortunately, we've made a mess out of morality and the lack thereof it today. But it often isn't just what the kids do. Sometimes we parents and grandparents uh, contribute to low moralities as well. Because most of the time, when, when we're trying to guide our, our children or our grandchildren, uh, we give them guidance by just two little words. That when they leave to, to make choices on their own, maybe it's a, a, out with a car for the first time or an overnight with a friend or, or just something that where, where they've got to make choices on their own. We generally say two simple words but give no other real guidance. Anybody know what those words are when they, get, when they leave? Be good. Be good. We send them off and we just say, be good. And if all we say is be good, what do they really hear? What they're really hearing sometimes is don't burn down the house, don't wreck the car, don't kill the cat. Be good. Unless we set a, a standard that, that goes along with God's morality that chooses to honor him from the beginning, oftentimes what we communicate with being good is don't get in trouble. Be, be good enough that, that you don't get caught. And over the time, 
all we hope to, for them to hear is be good, we make a mess of things. Because what they hear is, now keep the car out of the ditch, keep yourself out of the principal's office, and keep your girlfriend out of the delivery room. Be good. And when our standards aren't aligned with God's because of he is the one who's holy, we make a mess of things and we buy into the standards of Satan. And he again gets us to buy in to a low standard. It's one of the things the book did an excellent job at. I would highly recommend this book if you're dealing with especially children or a a sense of moral uh, deficiency for yourself. Uh, The book, Faithfully Different, has this chapter about buying into biblical values again. And it lets us see that the world has bought into this moral buy-in of of Satan that's low. I want to explain to how this moral buy-in usually happens. The book starts out by saying it, it usually is first affected by redefinition. What the world does is it redefines uh, standards or things that we once thought were noble and changes them, flips them. For example, a redefinition of the word equality, the word equality has, has had this happen over the last few years. Equality no longer means believing every human has equal inherent value. Uh, that's something even in our Constitution, we're all created in, uh, equally, you know, with great value in, in the image of the Creator. That, that's where equality ha- has good biblical truth. But now equality means believing that everyone's choice have equal moral value. And we really get that messed up. While each of you are extremely important, you're created in God's eyes, uh, uh, the greatest sinner, the greatest saint. We have value because we're creating God's image. But now what the world has said, every one of us has this moral choice based on how we feel. It's right. And what I write, what I think is right, is just as valuable as what you think is right. That's not right. Where we have value in is who we're made in, not by what we think is right. Also, diversity has been hijacked and redefined. Diversity no longer means believing in the benefit of multiple viewpoints, which is good. We all have different viewpoints. In fact, that's one of the things our churches were founded on, that on the essentials will be united and there will be grace on the non-essentials. Multiple viewpoints are important. But now diversity now means elevating the popular moral viewpoint and silencing or even shaming others. The sake of diversity, we have swung the pendulum so far that if you disagree with the trending moral thought, uh, you should be silenced. You ever heard of cancel culture? That's where this comes from, this idea that if you don't fit into what's trending, you need to be shut out and shamed. That's not diversity. That's bigotry. And tolerance has been hijacked. Tolerance no longer means cordially bearing with each other's ideas, which is so important. We need to be grace-filled and compassionate when we have different thoughts. That's tolerant. But now it means affirming the current moral trend no matter what. That if you're truly tolerant, what even seems as radically wrong, that you need to not only listen to it, but you need to celebrate it. And sometimes when we choose not to celebrate it, we will be viewed as the ultimate judge, which was never our intention. The next phase of the world's buy-in to bad morals is normalization. And here's what it looks like. Normalization takes place as things that were once known as wrong are so consistently seen and celebrated among the culture that we begin to believe it's not only a relevant and acceptable practice, but it should be praised. 
This is when that thing that was once bad is so promoted in our culture, in media, with our friend group, uh, so much uh, praise within the world, we are convinced that it's not only wrong anymore, it's excellent and should be celebrated. We see this all the time. That's normalization. And it leads into the final thing that she highlights is celebration. This is the part of the bad moral buy-in that we spoke of a few weeks ago from Romans 1. Look what it says in Romans chapter 1. Though they know God's righteous decree, they know the word, they know what God asked, that those who practice such things deserve to die. He's talking about sin. He lists sin there. He says, they know these things are sinful. They not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. Here's what Paul is saying. Uh, The world really deceives us when not only do we accept something and do it, but then not only uh, do it and, and are afraid of it, but we end up celebrating it. We redefine things. We normalize things, and then at some point, our culture says, uh, when morality is so bad that we begin to approve it and applaud it and praise it, it happens so fast. Something that at one point was seen as sin by the entire culture is now being celebrated as something good, but God never established a good. God has actually called some of these things sin. Think of all the things that you once seen that were shocking and now are celebrated. They have been normalized to the point where we praise them. And I think it's consuming us from the inside out. You you see it all around. This week I saw in the chicken coop. Now follow me here. I had traveled to uh, Streeter, Illinois to spend uh, 4th of July with Tiffany's family. My niece and nephew have a a new chicken coop. They've got 16 laying chickens. And, And these chickens, by the date of their birth and all that, were supposed to begin to laying on July 4th. Sure enough, Early that morning, we walked out to the chicken coop, and there was one lone egg to be found. However, it was no longer intact. I don't know if you know what chickens do when the first egg shows up in the chicken coop, and they've never seen an egg before. Does anybody know what happens? They peck that egg to to smithereens, and I never knew this before, even though I grew up on a farm. Uh, But but this first group of of chickens uh, saw this egg, and they destroyed it. They, They tore it apart. They carried it all throughout the enclosure. But my little nephew knew exactly what to do. He knew that that chicken coop needed to be normalized to chicken eggs. Even though they're chickens, they never knew what that was. So he ran to the house about a quarter mile away, came back with uh, a dozen of these. They are ceramic nest eggs, and they uh, allow the chickens to peck them and to identify them as something that's safe. Uh, This is a six-pack. He had a 12-pack, okay? He was ready. And they put those eggs throughout the chicken coop in the laying position, And within a matter of days, now that the chickens have seen not only the the one original egg, they've seen these other 12 eggs, they are now normalized to their eggs, and they are laying eggs and not destroying them. And I couldn't help but think that what we do to chickens in a good way to normalize the eggs, Satan does to us with things that he wants us to be comfortable with and and allow to be around that end up destroying our hearts and our minds and our morality. How he places this thing here and this thing here and these things here. And and the world begins to celebrate. And we're like, well, everybody's doing it. It it can't be that bad. And all of a sudden, we are fooled to to believing it's okay. It can't help but wonder if I began to place little one-foot, two-foot snakes within that chicken coop, rubber snakes, if the, the chickens, I'm sure at first, would attack that. But maybe I placed 12 or maybe two dozen in there. And over the course of two weeks, I believe they would begin to be comfortable with those rubber snakes. 
And then what would happen after a month or two of those snakes being around if you would let loose a a big snake that would eat the eggs? Uh, I believe, uh, much like we are, uh, exposed to things of this world, the chickens would become normalized to that, uh, that, that snake, and I believe we would as well. And bad morality is bought into in our world. So how do we reclaim biblical morality when we have lost so much focus of these things that are distracting us? How do we buy back into what God says is true and let it guide our lives and let the word win? Well, the first thing is not, I don't think, a how, but based on the preaching of Jesus, I think Jesus is saying there's a why. First, we've got to ask the why. What's the motive? What's the reason to be good and moral? And I want you to see this from the text. The motive for morality is not personal perfection. And aren't you thankful for that? Because I know I can't be perfect. If you're anything like me, you can't be perfect either. Our motive, the why for morality is not personal perfection, but it's bringing praise to the Father. Don't be good for goodness sake. You ever heard that before? It will be good for goodness sake. Don't be good for goodness sake. Be good to bring God glory. It's right in the text. Look, look to Matthew chapter 5 in this first sermon of Jesus and his preaching. You've heard this before if you, were, if you grew up in the church. You are light to the world. A city on a hill not, cannot be hidden. You are, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket. We sang that song, you don't put it under a bushel. But you put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Jesus here gives us the why. You don't do good works so that you can be seen as perfect, so that, so that you, your family can be respected in the community, which, which are, is a fine thing. We do good things and do good works to bring God glory. So let me ask you this. Do the things you do, do where you go, do people you hang out to, you two with, do, do they lead you to bring glory and praise to God? Do you live in such a way right now that others want to honor God and praise Him because of what you do, the good things you do? Or are you just getting through life saying, well, I'm not that bad. I'm not doing things bad. Everybody's doing it. Uh, The Word of God here says, Jesus says, do these good things so God will receive glory. Motives matter. Some people ask why you do good things. What do you say? Brad asked the question, hey, do we give a reason for the hope we have, or do we just do good things to to fit in at church, to to have a good name? Why do you do good things? What's your your motive? The Word of God here says, do it so to bring glory to God. Too often times we live in the world, and the world is confused by what we do. Many of your friends have no clue why you would come to Sunday, Sunday morning service every week. They would have no idea. They they can't even fathom maybe giving a a tithe, 10% of all that you make to the kingdom of God. They have no clue why you go to CIY for a week with a bunch of teenagers or hang out at camp with with little children. They have no idea. And sometimes when you're asked, we don't give very good reasons. So we're like, I don't know. It's kind of hard. Sometimes we we get to the point where, where we moan and groan about what God has called us to do. And our motives are off. I've seen Christians, though, be asked why they do what they do, and they catch themselves moaning and groaning. They're like, oh, oh, I don't really, it's not really that bad. Don't you see the joy in my life? No, we haven't seen your face for years. I would ask you today to make a choice to do good things for God's glory. Sure, there are times we do things out of responsibility and obligation, but when it's really good is when we do it for His glory, to bring glory to God. 
I miss it sometimes, probably as much as I get it right. I recently missed the chance to celebrate doing something good for God's glory uh, in, a, in a car buying price process. Now, uh, now that the boys are, are getting older, uh, we are wheelers and dealers at our house. We may have a car for six months or maybe two years, but the amount of automobile transactions that we've went through, you thought I was a small car lot, okay? And recently I went to uh, Missouri tr- to track down a truck with one of my sons. And it was a roller coaster ride. It was there, and then it was gone, and then he calls back and says, you can come and get it. So we, we came back to get it. Even that son wasn't available. He was at football practice. So another one of my boys went to buy the, the car, and we were to that point. I was in the kitchen, and, and I was like, man, this is really going to happen. We're filling out the bill of sale and transferring over the title, and the guy asked a, a tough question. He says, so, so what do you want me to put on the bill of sale for how much you bought the car for, the truck for? He said, do you want me to put down half or a third because, because it's an old enough truck? They won't ever know. And I surprised him. I said, no, put down the full purchase price. And he looked at me. He's like, no, let me, let me get this straight. You want me to put down the full amount so you can pay the full tax? You want to pay all the tax that you have to? And I says, yes, I've recently been convicted of this, and I want to do what's right. And he stepped back. He says, what do you mean you're convicted? I said, no, not of the law. I didn't go to prison. I was just convicted in my heart. <laughs> he did not know what to do with that truth. And then he said this, he, rem- he remembered who I was. He goes, oh yeah, you're a minister. You've got to do that, don't you? <laughs> and I had an opportunity right before me to allow him to know what my heart was in this. Yes, I had been convicted, but my heart is more than about that. I, re- reading this sermon as I was preparing for this, my heart was convicted to honor God in, in the big things and little things, including paying taxes. And I missed the opportunity to really tell him it wasn't because I was scared of the government. It wasn't because I was scared of the law of God. I wanted to bring glory to him. And all I could say is I needed to do this. And I didn't really give a great answer for my desire to honor him. Honestly, I desired to honor God and that was it. But he still, I don't think, understood it as I left. And my heart, was, my heart hurt about that. Here's what the word of God says about our hearts in this. In 1 Peter chapter 3, it says... In your hearts, honor Christ as the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for the reason for the hope you have in in you. He, He says, be ready to share with people why you do the things you do, yet do it with gentleness and respect. See, the motive for morality is not personal perfection, because I'm going to make mistakes over and over and over again, but my, my motive for morality is to bring praise to the Father. And honestly, I still hope that that guy is a little confused why I would have paid all the tax. And he's wondering, was it just because he was afraid of getting caught, or is he desiring to honor God, to honor Christ? Here's the second thing we need to understand when we pursue morality. It's not just for us to be perfect. It's also the standard for morality is not from oneself, but it's found in the word of the Son. It's found in God's word. The standard for morality, the world would say, you get to choose whatever you want, but, but, but the true standard for morality is found in the word. Our feelings have never been the standard for what's right and wrong. God has always had and will always have the authority to declare what's right and wrong. What, what is holy and what is set apart for him. What is sinful and aligned with hell. It is God's word that has that standard. And we have been deceived if we think it's in our own heart. Because our hearts will fool us. Hear this today. As brothers and sisters in Christ, I care for you in this. It's time for us to recommit to a biblical worldview. 
I've said it over and over and over again, and if this is the one thing that I'm remembered for, I'm fine with. We must let the word win. God's moral standards never change because his unchanging character is steadfast. Without recognizing and holding God's unchanging, irreversible irreversible character, morality becomes whatever we want. In the preaching, you see this. Turn with me to the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 7. Jesus is making the the claim that he is the standard. He he is the litmus test. And he says over and over again in this text, he says, uh, you have heard it said. You you thought this was the standard, but he says, I'm going to raise it to a higher level. He says, uh, the world standard is here. You've heard God say here in the Old Testament, but I say this. Listen to some of these in Matthew chapter 5. He says, you've heard it said, do not murder. It's a good standard. We'd all agree, most humans agree, do not murder. But God says, do not harbor anger. Man, that's hard. That's almost impossible. He says, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I say, do not lust in your heart. Woo. He says, "Uh, you've heard it said, do not lie. But I say, be completely honest about everything. He said, you've heard it said, divorce legally. But I say, don't divorce except for adultery. He raises the standard. He says, you've heard it said, love your neighbors, which is great. That's fine. But I say to you, love your enemies. And what I would say to you as humans, it's not possible. It's not possible uh, to even live out the first standard on this list, but to take it to the next standard, it is humanly impossible. And the reason Jesus is making this point, there are religious leaders listening to this first sermon at the edge of the, 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 the people, thousands of people there, and they're thinking, well, I do this, this, and this, and I've got it figured out. I'm on my way to heaven. Jesus says, this is what you think God's kingdom is about, but I'm raising the standard and you're not going to be able to fulfill it. You're still lost says the standard of the kingdom of God is higher. So if you're here today and say, man, I can't do it, you're normal. If you can't do this on your own, you're just like me. You're never going to live up to God's standards, but that's why we're saved by grace through faith. And that's why this final thing, not only do the standards come from Christ, but here's where we got to close. This is what, this is what makes it all possible. The ultimate goal of morality is not humanly possible. We can't do it, but it's Holy Spirit empowered. So begin to see this. We're moral to give God glory by the standards of Jesus empowered by the Holy Spirit. Look look what it says in the text. It's the sermon again. He just laid out for them that you can't do this on your own. And he says this, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you'll find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who receives and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which of you, if he has his ask his son for bread, we'll give him a stone. Or if he asks for a fish, we'll give him a serpent. If you then, who are evil, which is true, we're not, we're not saints, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Father in heaven give good things to those who ask him? He, he's saying God is going to make a way if we would just ask. What I find interesting, Luke, in Luke chapter 11, verse 13, he expounds on this sermon that Jesus says. Uh, he, he, I think, gives us a little bit more information. Look what Luke says in this sermon report. He says, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? 
Jesus saying the missing thing of true morality is not you being perfect. It's the Holy Spirit empowering your life. So, so please understand this. We're forgiven and saved by grace through the blood of Jesus, but we're empowered to be holy by the Holy Spirit living in us. The Holy Spirit in us is what allows us to honor God. Without the Holy Spirit in us, we're, we're going to continue to sin. We're going to continue to be immoral. We're going to continue to make mistakes. But when we're filled with the Holy Spirit, we can reach our full potential in Christ. It reminds me of this balloon, or any balloon for that matter. Balloons are pretty amazing things, and children are really amazed by balloons, whether they're blown up or they're fake. Some of you uh, parents or grandparents, when you see this balloon, all you see right now, is, as it is, is a choking hazard. I mean, it's, it's a dangerous thing without air in it. It really serves very little purpose. I mean, you can do a few things with it, but it is not fulfilled. It's not been filled. But what's interesting, if you take a balloon and fill it, especially with a little thing called helium, amazing things happen. Take a little bit of helium, and you fill a balloon. It not, not only has shape, but it can really, yeah, it can really do what it was intended to do, is fly to new heights. And I would suggest to you that when you become saved through the blood of Jesus, uh, the Bible promises two things. Your sins will be forgiven and we become perfect in God's eyes, but the Holy Spirit fills us and gives us shape and gives us strength to let us truly fly and reach heights that only he can take us to. Now, if today you're like, well, I've never been saved. I've never had my sins forgiven. I know I don't have the Holy Spirit. Uh, that is what you're missing to, in, in, in this morality um, dilemma. What, what I just showed you with the balloon is an imperfect illustration, but what it is is sanctification. It's a, it's a deep theological word that says we're becoming more and more like Jesus. When we're filled with the Holy Spirit, we're sanctified. Look what the scripture says about this. And the Lord, who is the Spirit, makes us more and more like him. It gives us shape. It gives us form. And it changes us into his glorious image. Many of you today are still floppy, flimsy, being tossed back and forth by, by the world. But when the Holy Spirit is in you, he continually transforms us to make us like Jesus. Do you still make mistakes? I know I do. Am I always seen as moral? Am I always ethical in every way? No, but I am saved, and the Holy Spirit secures that. Listen to this about the Holy Spirit and what he does in salvation. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth the gospel of your salvation. You were saved through the blood of Jesus, the good news that he died for our sins and came back to life. When you believed, you were marked in him with the seal, the promised Holy Spirit. He fills us, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are in God's possession to the praise of his glory. So even in this text, you can see it. We were included with Christ, marked with the Holy Spirit for the praise and glory of God. Satan will tell you, you're never going to be enough. You're never going to have it all figured out. And that's true. But based on this truth, what Christ has done for you, your sins are forgiven in him. The spirit lives in you to make you more like Christ. And it's all for the glory of God. I want you to know we're in a battle. The battle is real. But here's the cool part. Here's one thing our staff understood from this chapter that we studied as much as anything. While the battle is real for morality and between right and wrong, the war has been won against sin. And if you belong to Christ, you are saved. Amen? You are saved. 
So don't be afraid of the battle, but make a claim. Uh, uh, push against the morality war and say, uh, what you feel is not always right. The things that are redefined need to be restructured again for God's glory based on the standards of Jesus empowered by the Spirit. Hey, don't buy into the man-made morality dilemma. It's, it's a distraction. Seek purity through the power of the Holy Spirit. Always trusting the words of Jesus as the standard. Living to bring glory to the Father in heaven forever. Father in heaven, we thank you for this reminder of the preaching of Jesus. Father, give us wisdom as we navigate how to do right and wrong. Father, if there's someone here today that's wondering if they're saved, let them trust first in your your blood that you shed on the cross, that that's what saves them, and then empowered to live for you as more and more holy, more and more like Jesus through the Holy Spirit. Father, help us today. Give us guidance and let us shine, not, not for our perfection, but for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with us as we sing? Maybe you're here today and you're like, I've not been saved. I'm a mess. Maybe it's time for your sins to be washed away. Maybe also you need to consider how you can be empowered and start to really walk in tune with the Spirit. Dee and I would love to pray with you, love to talk to you more about that. But it starts with you humbling yourself and making a claim in your heart that it's not me being perfect. It's being made perfect by the blood of Jesus. Let's sing.